0: Well, good morning, church family. So, in case we haven't had a chance to interact, my name is Jamie, and I am one of the ministry directors here. I also get the opportunity to serve with the men's ministry leadership team and to help lead the amazing kids in our treehouse service. It is also my privilege this morning to be with all of you looking into God's Word, what it means, and how we can apply it to our lives. So this week in the F260 reading plan... We finished the book of Genesis and we're moving into Exodus. And if you've been following the plan, you know that the final chapters of Genesis focus on the story of Joseph, how he was favored by his father, how his brothers were jealous of him and sold him into slavery, how he rose to some prominence in Egypt only to be unjustly persecuted, and then how he rose all the way again, second only to Pharaoh in Egypt, and finally in the last chapter how he was reconciled to his family. Today I want to focus on one small verse found in that last chapter of Genesis that not only speaks to that reconciliation of Joseph and his family, but it also sets up the gospel message we throughout all of scripture and it answers and addresses one of the most difficult and sensitive issues in our lives. So would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 50 and we're going to start at verse 15. So it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And this is the key verse for today that we're going to focus on. Joseph said to them, You planned evil against me, but God planned it for the good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. You see, in this passage, it's as clear as anywhere else in the Bible that God is sovereign, that man is free to make choices, but also that man freely chooses to do evil and finally, that God will and can use that evil for a greater good. In fact, it's the climax of the entire book of Genesis, and if you think about it, it is a summary of our faith in Christ. I wanna ask you some questions this morning. Do you really believe that God is good? Do you love God? Are you called by God? Do you trust that God will work all things out for good? Is God good? What is God doing about all the evil in our world? Where was God when a 20-year-old shot and killed 26 people at Sandy Hook Elementary, including 20 children between the ages of 6 and 7 years old? Why did God allow 19 terrorists to crash four planes and take the lives of almost 3,000 Americans on September 11, 2001? And what should we say about the six million Jews destroyed by a madman bent on creating a master race? What about the slave trade practices that started in America in the 1600s and lasted for almost 200 years? And what should we say about the Nigerian Christians that were brutally murdered just this past Christmas for expressing their faith in Christ? Or what about the sexual abuse of children? From a church denomination that should have been the first line of defense against such evils. And what should we say to the mother whose child was kidnapped and never returned? Every one of us has witnessed, experienced, or heard of tragedy and moral evils like this. These are things that human beings do to each other. Just like what Joseph's brothers did to him. The title of today's message is Evil Exists, But God Is Good. And I want to take a deeper look at how we address the problem of human evil and how we should think about it in light of the fact and the knowledge that God is good. But most importantly, how he will use human evil for good purposes. You see, this problem of evil is not only a challenge made to Christians by unbelievers, but it's also one of the largest barriers that you and I can have in our ability to completely trust in God. So as we get started, I want to examine this so-called problem of evil that unbelievers use as an argument against God. You see, I've seen atheists challenge Christians because of this issue. And they might say something like this. If an all-powerful and perfectly good God exists, then evil does not exist. However, there are evils in the world. Therefore, an all-powerful and perfectly good God does not exist. Now, maybe that makes a little bit of sense, but we need to look at it, take a very hard look at these kind of arguments. For this argument to work, it must be built on some key attributes that we assume about God, that he is good, that he knows everything, and that he is all-powerful. And this, this is the conclusion that atheists come to. If God is those things, then he would not allow evil in this world. It's built entirely on that assumption. Therefore, the unbeliever would argue that either God is not fully and completely good because he allows evil, or the second option is that he doesn't exist at all. Either way, they would have to say that the Bible, the God of the Bible that we believe in is false. But there's one huge problem with this claim. It's extremely poor thinking, and it is, in fact, a logical fallacy. Not only is the unbeliever making a mistake by mixing up the evil that they know with the evil that God is aware of, but the largest problem is that this dilemma is a false dilemma, it assumes that there are only two options available to us when it comes to both God and evil being present in this world. They assert that either God isn't who Christians claim he is or that he can't exist at all. But this is nothing new. This type of poor thing is ancient. 200 years before Christ, the Greek philosopher Epicurus puts it this way. Maybe. Okay. Okay. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able to? Then he is not all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is immoral. Is he both able and willing? Then where does evil come from? And is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? But even Jesus had to deal with poor thinking from those who should have known better. When the Pharisees plotted to trap Jesus, they set up a similar type of dilemma. In Matthew chapter 22, it goes like this Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they, left, when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. See, the Pharisees presented a dilemma to him that they thought he couldn't get out of. By suggesting that it is lawful to pay taxes, Jesus could be accused of supporting the Roman Empire, and that would have destroyed his credibility with the common people. But also, if he had denied it, he could be accused of treason with the Roman authorities. Jesus knew from the beginning the dishonesty of the Pharisees and he spotted the wrong thinking. But here's the most important thing to catch. Jesus demonstrated that they did not know the character of God and these are the people that claim to worship him. Jesus' answer to them showed that you can pay taxes to the government and at the same time trust in God's character, that he will work all things out for good for those who love him. Jesus asked them whose image was on the coin, and they told him Caesar's. So he said, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and to God's what is God's. Now we think about this for just a moment. Jesus did not have to say what belongs to God, because the Pharisees knew the answer. What belongs to God It's the Pharisees. It's every human being. Brother and sister, what belongs to God is you and I because we bear his image. Caesar's image was on the coin. It belonged to Caesar. God's image is on us and we belong to God. And we long for goodness and an end to evil because of that image. It's why we are shocked and why we cry out when pain, suffering, and evil prevail that very image was carried by Jesus as he took on flesh and he dwelt among us and while bearing this image the shortest verse in the bible bears witness to the impact that evil has on god's heart john 11:35 says that jesus wept jesus in his humanity felt the full pain and horror of what evil does to our lives, the utter destruction that it causes, and the utter contempt for life that death has for human beings. So why do we do this? Why do people do this? Why do they question God because of evil? If we look back at our key verse today, who is the cause of the evil intentions in this verse? It was Joseph's brothers who intended evil. When atheists challenge Christians on this issue, they create a false dilemma that disregards what the Bible actually says about God, about his goodness, and about human evil. The Bible is clear that from the very beginning, mankind is ultimately the cause of evil, and it's because of the choices that we make Instead of renewing their mind with the word of God, unbelievers attack the character and the nature of God. They reject God because they don't know who God is. All we need to do is look back at Genesis chapter 3 to understand that this is the same satanic temptation given to Adam and Eve. This resulted in mankind becoming the definer of good and evil for themselves and thus the cause of it. The serpent indirectly questioned God's character by suggesting that God was misleading Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve should have known better. The philosopher Epicurus should have known better and the Pharisees should have known better. Unbelievers today should know better. God has demonstrated his goodness to us by creating a good world for us. The very creation that cries out and reveals his wonderful nature But it is by our own hands that we bring hell to this earth and thus we are like Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers freely chose an evil pursuit. First, by contemplating murdering their brother and then resorting to selling him into slavery and lying about it to their father. Like Joseph's brothers, our free choices and intentions are inclined towards evil. The blame for evil rests on our shoulders. But that's not the whole story. God can and does use human evil and turns it into something good. I wanna tell a story that illustrates this principle. The year was 1855. Slavery was still practiced by many in the state of Missouri. His name was Moses, and he was pro-union even though he owned slaves one of whom was named Mary. It's understood that he treated his slaves like family. But this made some of the local, violent, pro-Confederates very upset. These were the type of people that went around terrorizing their neighbors and destroying the property of those who were sympathetic to the Union. One cold January night, these raiders rode through Moses' farm. The outlaws burned the barn shot several people, and dragged off the woman named Mary, who refused to let go of her infant son, George. Moses' wife, Susan, wrote many messages and contacted nearby farms and was finally able to arrange a meeting with them and her husband, Moses. And in the middle of the night, Moses met up with four of those outlaws. They were on horseback, carrying torches, and had flower sacks over their head with holes cut out for eyes. There the farmer traded his only horse for what those outlaws threw at him in a dirty burlap bag. And as those bandits thundered off on their horses, Moses fell to his knees. And there alone on that dark, cold night, pulled out from that bag a cold, unclothed, almost dead baby boy. Covering him with his own clothes and relying on the warmth from his own body, The man turned and walked that baby all the way through the night back to his home. Moses and Susan committed to each other that that boy would receive an education in honor of his mother, Mary. As he grew, they taught him the basics of reading and writing, and they found him very intelligent. They gave the baby their own name, and that is how Moses and Susan Carver came to raise George Washington Carver. Now, George Washington Carver is the guy who had a love for farming and for peanuts. He is famous for developing crop rotation systems for cotton farmers, and it's also said that he developed hundreds of applications for the tiny little peanut. Now, Carver came to Christ when he was around 10 years old, and he testified on many occasions that it was his faith in Jesus that was the only mechanism by which he could effectively pursue and perform the art of science. But here's a part of the story that most people don't know. When Carver was 19, and a student at Iowa State, he babysat his professor's six-year-old son. And Carver instilled in that six-year-old boy a love for plants and a vision for what they could do for humanity. And that boy was young Henry Wallace, who was later Vice President under Franklin Roosevelt. And he used the power of his office to create a research station in Mexico to crossbreed corn and wheat for dry climates. And there he hired a young man named Norman Borlaug. And in the early 1940s, Norman Borlaug effectively crossbred high-yield, disease-resistant corn and wheat for desert climates. All across the world, Borlaug's specific seed products flourished and regenerated where no seed had ever survived before. It has now been calculated that Norman Borlaug's work saved more than two billion lives from famine. Slavery was an immense evil, and what those raiders did with Carver's birth mother, we will never know in this life. That surviving child who put his faith in Christ never knew what God would use out of the terrible situation he was born into. See, God linked a chain of causes from Carver's birth to influencing a young Henry Wallace who in turn hired Norman Borlaug who created a food product that sustained two billion lives. God can and will use evil for good. And though we might miss it, he is active in this world, working out good things for his creation. He did it with Joseph, and he did it with George Washington Carver. And brother and sister, he is doing it with you and I. The result of those two situations was much good in the saving of many lives. And this is why we must look to God and and his character when we face evil. So we keep talking about evil but what exactly is it? Well, before we tackle that question, I'm gonna take a look at what we mean by good. God did not create good, nor is he subject to some moral goodness outside of himself. God is good. This is an attribute inseparable from his eternal being. We could not take away goodness from any more than we could draw a square triangle. Psalm 119.68 says, You are good, and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. Jesus reminded the rich young ruler of God's goodness in Luke 18.19. He said to him, Why do you call me good? Jesus said, No one is good except God alone. James, the brother of Jesus, declares, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Psalm 107.1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Goodness is something that flows out of the character of God. He does not change. He is always good. And if something is good, it's because it reflects the nature of God. He is the standard of what good is. And he is perfectly good. Good. So now that we have a clearer understanding by what what we mean when we say that something is good, we also need to consider what it means when we use the word evil. Consider the illustration of light and dark. Light is itself a form of matter, we call it a photon. But what is darkness? Darkness is nothing, it's the absence of light. Or how about hot and cold? Heat is the transfer of energy from one object to another. But cold doesn't transfer from one item to another. Cold is a condition we call something when it has a lack of heat. Likewise, evil is the absence of what is good. One of the most significant and influential church fathers, Augustine of Hippo, puts it this way. For what is that which we call evil but the absence of good? In the bodies of animals, disease and wounds mean nothing but the absence of health. For the wound or disease is not a substance, but a defect in the fleshly substance. In the same way, what are called vices in the soul are nothing but privations of natural good. And when they are cured, they are not transferred anywhere else. When they cease to exist in the healthy soul, they cannot exist anywhere else. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that evil doesn't exist. It is very clear that evil exists, but it is also very clear that evil exists because of its lack of goodness, or maybe I should say its lack of godness. Is it no wonder that we see evil deeds committed upon children by children in our public schools? We have uninvited God from them. Is it no wonder that we look at a country that hasn't been this divided since the days of the Civil War? Many no longer believe that we are one nation under God. We've uninvited Him. Is it no wonder that our university graduates come out of their schools with a philosophy of save the planet, kill the unborn? It is because in many of our institutions of higher learning, we have uninvited God from them. The absence of God means the absence of good and mankind is therefore filled with an inclination for evil. In Romans chapter three, Paul makes it very clear what turning from God's goodness looks like for human beings. Quoting from the book of Psalms, he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. So one final question remains that needs answered today. If God is good, can he not do something about the evil in this world? And in this final point, I want to examine what God has said he is doing about this problem of evil. And the answer to that is found in these last few chapters of Genesis. Within the story of Joseph, God has given a glimpse of the ultimate answer to the problem of evil. And that answer comes in the form of a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. In the narrative, Joseph is a type of Christ. He is a representation of the one that is to come and in his story, we see the interplay between a good God and the evil that is in our world. And as we look into scripture, we can see how this problem is dealt with in the life, death, resurrection, and the coming return of the king. In our lives, we face four different kinds of evils. Natural evil, what we might call chaos in nature. Moral evils that are in ourselves and in others. It's what the Bible calls sin. Sin. Sickness and disease is the third one. And the fourth and final one, and the worst type, is death itself. Concerning natural evil, Christ demonstrates his authority over chaotic nature when he walked on water, when he turned water into wine, and when he commanded the winds to stop. And the book of Revelation tells us that at the fulfillment of all time, Christ's victory will result in the restoration of all nature. Into a new heavens and a new earth. Regarding the sin that's in ourselves, Christ lived a sinless life so that through the atonement he made on the cross through his death, we can be forgiven of our sins and no longer be judged for them. As far as sickness goes, Christ demonstrated his authority over that as well through his healing miracles. And while those miracles may still happen today, we also know that Christ has given wisdom and knowledge to scientists and doctors. But we must take heed that this present life we are not guaranteed to be without suffering and pain. But we can also take heart because he gives us the Holy Spirit who comforts us. And as we read in the book of Revelation, Every tear will be wiped away. No more pain, no more suffering, no more death. The old order of things will pass away. And as far as death goes, Christ has given us his resurrection and the promise of a resurrection for you and I. And that leads us to a conclusion. When we face the evils in this life, we must look to our eternal destination and what God has done is doing and will do. And speaking of eternal destination, it's not unusual to hear unbelievers ask why a good God would send people to hell. The answer to that question is that it is the wrong question. The correct question is why would a perfectly good God save us from the evil that we created all on our own? God doesn't arbitrarily send people to hell. He doesn't have to. You and I were well on our way there all by ourselves. What God created to separate evil from goodness is our chosen place through our sin. We have chosen an eternal destination. But it is our escape from hell that comes from the grace of a good God and the victory of Christ on the cross where he paid for our sins If hell is where some people end up after this life, we have to keep this in mind. They must step around the crucified body of Jesus Christ as they march their way in. I think C.S. Lewis says it correctly when he says, All that are in hell, choose it. And he says that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. God is good. But the absence of God is the absence of good. And without God, we are doomed. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And Psalm 14 says, verses 2 and 3 tells us that the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there's anyone who is wise, anyone who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That is some bad news. And here's the warning. The work done on the cross is not a promise to save all people no matter what. What God did in Joseph's time was to save the physical lives of many people, but not all people. There was no universal salvation. As we'll see in the book of Exodus and as we continue into the rest of the books, not all of the Israelites will make it into the promised land either. In fact, an entire generation of people passed away because they failed to place their trust in God. A New Testament parallel to our passage this week is Romans eight twenty eight. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And I take that promise, and it sounds really, really good. But many people skip over the part that says that God works things out for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That promise is not universal. It is conditional. One must love God, but we can't do that unless we are saved and called by God. So I want to return to my opening questions. And, Ben, you can go ahead and start making your way up. Do you love God? Has He called you to life in the kingdom of God? If that has never happened, it may be that He is calling you today. Will you trust your life to God today? Don't hesitate. God is good. He loves you. He loves you enough to die for you. Here's what you need to do. We know the bad news. None of us can make it on our own. We'll never be good enough and God will not tolerate sin. Hell is the place where sin is dealt with eternally. But the good news is is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead according to the scriptures and now he is the reigning lord who has conquered this world and he offers the forgiveness of sins and the comforting gift of the holy spirit. Romans 6:23 also tells us that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our lord. What must you do? You must repent and believe. Repentance looks like this. You say to yourself, I know that I have sinned. I know where I'm headed. I change my mind and I turn away from that path that I was on and I look to the cross and the one who hung on it and I never take my eyes away. And belief means that you trust that Jesus' death and resurrection is more than enough to cover your sin. A proper synonym for belief is Trust. To believe in Jesus is to trust him, his word, and his promises. And when you do that, you are now in Christ, and you are adopted by God. Therefore, you are a son or a daughter of God. And the Bible says that you are co-heir with King Jesus. You are born again, and now you are called by God according to his purpose. Repent. Believe and trust in the name of Jesus Christ. His grace is enough to cover any sin and all the evil in the entire world. And if you don't know him, today is the day. Don't leave today without finding out the truth for yourself. Come talk with someone. We'll be over at Next Steps. Many are here right now that would want nothing more to help you start this new amazing journey with the one who created you. If these things are settled for you, then I call on you now brother and sister. Devote your entire life to him. Also, we need to go and make disciples of all the nations. That is our primary task. Charles Spurgeon once said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they should perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Christian brothers and sisters, we must love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all of our strength. That is our chief command. Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, starting today. Give him everything you are and all that you have. It all belongs to him. And if you've struggled with evils that have hurt you, or maybe you've been the contributor of evil in your life and in the life of others, he may just do something good with it, yet... Give him the chance. Don't you know that you and I are part of the solution for evil? It's our hands, our feet, our voice that are the instruments of Christ Himself in combating the evils that we see in this life. Only one life, only one life. Twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is willing and Jesus is calling today. He has conquered evil and his promises are true. And if you are in Christ on that very last day with that very last breath, the struggles in this life will pale in comparison to the glory that awaits you when you wake up from this shadow, this slumber, this sleep that we're in now and you hear this good God say to you, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father God, if we simply come to you this morning. and We ask, Lord, that you take this word that we've heard today and impact our hearts and change our minds for you, Lord. for the glory of Jesus Christ who it is in our attempt to make the most famous name in all the land. I pray, Lord, that you will not only turn the hearts of those that don't know you today towards you, but for all of us to leave this building today knowing that you are good and you do have a plan for the things of evil in this world. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you, and it's in the holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen.